Good morning, River City. Um, if you guys would begin, just uh, let's pray together um, while we start for a moment. Lord, with the psalmist, we, um, we do pray from Psalm 98, just acknowledging that your right hand has worked tremendous salvation among us. And so we just say thank you, and we praise you for how good you are and how you declare your glory to the nations. In your own prayers, take a minute to reflect on your week, confessing and repenting of ways that you have fallen short, reminding yourself of the sin and how much you are in need of Jesus. Take a moment now to remind yourself of the grace and the mercy that is freely available to you at the throne of our God. Let us pray for our, our city, our state, and our country. For the churches and the communities the leaders who guide them pay for wisdom, for justice. Take a moment to remember the needs in your own community of your friends and family. Bring those before the Lord knowing that he cares for you. And for those in your life who do not yet know the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, ask that the Lord would make himself known to them and bring them to the saving knowledge of Jesus. And finally, ask for the Spirit's help this morning, for him to illuminate the word to us, for him to offer conviction of sin and find joy in the salvation that we have. We ask all these things in the name of the Father. Amen. It's wonderful to be here this morning. Um, and just to see like a, a, a joyful mixture of of close friends, like faces that I know really well that I've spent a year or two with, and then also like new faces. Um, so I love both of that coming on Sunday mornings, um, seeing close friends, meeting new people, meeting new faces. So because there's, there's new people, I still feel the need to like introduce myself when I get up here. Um, so my name is Sawyer Nyquist. I'm an elder candidate here. Um, I've been around since kind of the early days of this church and just um, loved watching um, how things have grown over the last year. My wife and I host a city group on Thursday nights, so just shameless plug for city groups in general, specifically for Thursday night groups. That um, Thursday night group is great. We'd love to have you join us, um, but it's all for that for now. And I want to start for a second now just by posing a question. So have you ever been baking something or cooking and forgotten an ingredient? Okay, yeah, of course, yeah, 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 a few echoes out there, good. I'm not the only one. Uh, but it's every like the obvious things like flour or salt or sugar. No, 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 it's like, it's like you forget like the baking soda or the yeast. So what happens when you forget something essential? Okay, 
it usually fails miserably. And so I was thinking about this this week, and I was reminded of, of one of my favorite things on the internet. And that's like, and that's Pinterest fails. Okay, so I, if, you, if you know what Pinterest is, it's like the idyllic world of the internet where there are these pictures of baking and crafting things, and it tells you that you too can make something perfect, right? That's, what, that's, the, that's the lie that Pinterest tells you. And so, and so what Pinterest fails are, are just these, these beautiful stories of, of efforts to imitate what's on Pinterest. Um, and so I just have a couple of examples of a, a chocolate-covered popsicle, kiwi popsicle. It looks beautiful, right? But then when you attempt to make it, it sometimes turns out a little bit differently. Okay? Or, or, or maybe you were attempting to make these beautiful-looking waffle iron cookies. Also great, but then they might end up looking slightly differently um, than that. So, so sometimes reality falls short of expectations, right? So Pinterest gives you this hope of what could be, um, but if you miss something essential, it falls apart. And that's the first thing that comes to my mind when something uh, doesn't go as planned. Like, did I miss something? Like, did I, did I miss a step or an ingredient? Did I forget the yeast? Did I replace baking soda with baking powder? Because they're basically the same thing, right? But today we're going to ask a little more important question than baking ingredients. What happens instead if you leave the resurrection out of the gospel? Okay, so is it essential? Does everything fall apart if it's missing? If it, and if it's necessary, why exactly do we need it? What happens if you leave the resurrection out of the gospel? So over the next two weeks, we're going to begin to explore that question in depth throughout the rest of 1 Corinthians 15. And I'll be here for the next two weeks, and so I'll need you to hang in there because we've got a lot of verses, like 50 verses for the rest of this chapter here. And I'm not going to be able to dig into everything. I'll just say this for a second. We're not going to be able to look at every part of this. We're going to have to skip over a few things. So if there's something confusing or interesting or you have questions about, and I don't cover it because I made choices and skipped things, um, feel free to ping me afterwards. I'd love to still talk about this stuff, but we're just going to have to make some choices about um, what we dig into throughout the rest of chapter 15. And by the end of this, my goal is that we find a hope in the gospel that's far greater than the expectations we came in here with. I hope that we come away with a greater hope in the gospel than we came in here with. So go ahead and open up to 1 Corinthians 15 with me. On your Bible, on your phone, it'll also be on the screen. Um, but let's begin reading in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 15. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Okay, so one verse, starting off slow here. You might be feeling a little bit defensive initially, and probably like some of the Corinthians, like, well, I don't deny the resurrection. But Paul seems to be responding to that. So what is Paul getting at here? What were the Corinthians missing? So first, it doesn't seem like the, the Corinthians were denying the resurrection of Christ. Paul doesn't seem to be defending that, but rather, it seems that they're struggling with is the future resurrection of believers, so that's what Paul's going to focus in on for the rest of the chapter. The Corinthians weren't denying life after death, because that was a common idea in the ancient world, some sort of life after death. But instead, they were questioning the bodily resurrection of a believer. They assumed that, that the spiritual was better, and that the physical was something that would be left behind in eternity. And so we may not be quite like the Corinthians, but we have some other ways that we ignore or deny the resurrection, or maybe just a little bit, just move it off center a little bit. 
And so this might happen when we think of our, prim- our salvation as primarily just a spiritual thing. And this is much more subtle, but it slips in, where we don't deny the resurrection of Jesus in general, but when you talk about your salvation or when you share the gospel, it becomes just a spiritual thing, where God is saving my soul or my spirit will be in heaven with God for eternity. And is that a problem? What's wrong with just a salvation for my soul? And so Paul will argue that this is a problem and that by dropping the resurrection from our gospel, by thinking that our salvation is just a spiritual thing, that we're subtly denying the gospel and the resurrection. And so I want to follow Paul's emphasis here. And so let's begin laying the groundwork for, for a more holistic gospel. Okay, so a gospel message that doesn't just preach salvation for your soul, but one that resolves that conflict with death that we all face and that we're going to slowly fill in over the next two weeks. But let's keep reading, because we only got through one verse so far. So, thirteen, verse 13 and through 15. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. And so when you leave the resurrection of the gospel, here's what Paul starts to get into. If you leave the resurrection of the gospel, then everything starts to fall apart. It starts to look like a Pinterest fail. But it's not exactly clear why that's the case yet. Okay, so why does everything fall apart, Paul? Why are these things in vain? Because first we have to acknowledge something that Paul's just assuming here. And that's that humanity is in a cosmic struggle against death. So throughout all of human history, death has been the greatest enemy. Death is that, that queen in Satan's chess game. From the garden, when, when eternal life, it used to be the default, was, was the default until sin and death entered with the fall. And then throughout the Old Testament, death is that, that constant feature on nearly every page and is the quintessential consequence of sin. Since the garden, creation has faced this overwhelming, overpowering force that we cannot defeat, and that's death. So if there's one enemy that's been common to all generations and nations, it's death. And it's not just in the Bible. It's, it's a struggle that, that shows up that we see in our, our cultural stories. And I didn't want to do this, but sometimes you just have like an illustration that like fits too good, but you don't really want to use the illustration. Um, but it, it, it's in our cultural stories, just like, just like in the Avengers. Okay, where's Troy at? Okay, um, so in, in the Avengers, you've got this, this troop of superheroes who are defending humanity or defending the world as we know it against two. Who's the main enemy in the, in the last two movies? Thanos. Thanos. Okay, so Thanos. Thanos is like, <laughs> Thanos is this personification of death. He's literally imaged after like the Greek mythological deity, like of death, who is, it's derived from the Greek for death. So you have these, these superheroes fighting to defend humanity against death. Okay, and it's not unique to the Avengers. Like, it shows up in all sorts of epic fantasy stories and all the cultural stories that we tell ourselves. This is struggle that's readily recognized where humanity is struggling against death. So until we recognize that death is our greatest enemy, we won't really understand what Paul's talking about here. So you have to ask, where is the hope 
when you face an enemy like death? How do you defeat death? What will end that war? Where is our hope to win the war against an enemy like death? Well, let's affect Paul here. So the, he's saying that the gospel message promised us power, that it promised us hope. That gospel message doesn't actually deliver without the resurrection. So instead, you're left with worthless or vain preaching and a worthless or vain faith. And then he makes it also a little bit of a confusing claim. Paul says, he says, if, there's, if you believe that you won't be resurrected from the dead, then you may as well deny that Christ rose from the dead. Well, why is that, Paul? And he's going to make this a little more clear later, but it's because the resurrection of Christ is the foundation for your resurrection. Okay, so the gospel is based on you following that pattern of Christ. That's your hope. That is that when you look at Christ, you know that you get to follow in his footsteps. Christ paved the way for you to follow. And so if someone's arguing that we won't follow his resurrection, well, then you might as well reject the work that Christ already accomplished. So if your gospel is missing the resurrection, then your hope is left hanging. And I want to leave you today, not with a half-baked gospel, not with a, a truncated hope, but with the power of God to defeat death and to offer you new life. Okay, so I hope you're catching just a little bit how strongly Paul feels about this, about the importance of the resurrection. And if you're, if you're sitting there and you're like, we're going to spend two weeks on the resurrection, then absolutely. Like Paul takes, and this, it's so much better than spending like three or four weeks on tongues, right? Okay, so the resurrection, <laughs> definitely, right? Can I get an amen, Brad? All right. So two weeks on the resurrection, and Paul spends a lot of time working through this here. But if you begin to bought into this idea that everything is all spiritual with our salvation, then you may have forgotten who your enemy really is. Death. And so we're going to see just hints of how devastating this is. That in this cosmic war between humanity and death, that rejecting the resurrection leads to inevitable defeat. The battle plan is fatally flawed without the resurrection. So deny the resurrection is to lose the war. But let's keep reading. So, verse 16. So we'll continue on, 16 through 19. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So if this idea of the resurrection is faulty or false or ignored, then the consequences are devastating, right? The hope of salvation is gone. Let's just work through Paul's list here because he gives us a long list of things that go false. Your preaching and your faith are in vain. Your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Those who have gone before, those who have died, they're gone. And we are to be most pitied of all people. So, so first, Paul's not arguing that just Christ needed to be raised from the dead. He's also arguing that you must be raised from the dead, that without Christ and us raised to life again, then this is all bunk. And so I love how an N.T. Wright summarizes this section, talking about the, the close connection between sin and death. The logic of it is simple, he says. Granted the close link between, in Scripture between sin and death. 
And so if God has overcome death in the resurrection of Jesus, then the power of sin is broken. But if he hasn't, then it isn't. If he hasn't overcome death in the resurrection, then sin isn't broken. And so if the resurrection is that important, then let's clarify what we mean. What are we, what are we talking about when we say a resurrection? What do we mean by that? Well, first, we mean a, a physical, bodily resurrection from the dead. And so there's a lot of questions and implications made about what that means. What does it mean for believers that they're going to rise again in a physical body? And we're going to talk about that a lot more next week, so, so come back for that. But at this point, we can say the gospel message and the resurrection are making a bold confession about something. And that is that the goodness and future of humans is in a physical body, in a physical world. That the eternal hope of believers is not to be angels dancing on clouds. No, God is saving you. And by you, I don't just mean your soul, but I mean every part that makes you who you are, body and soul. And so as your pastor, I care not just about your soul or about your spiritual formation. I care about your Christian formation as an embodied human. But we're getting a little ahead of ourselves because a lot of that's going to come up next week and we'll come back. And so Paul's talking here. He says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, if our hope only lasts in this life, then we're to be most pitied. So let me just ask, does your hope go beyond this life? Is your hope placed in something with, with no real payoff? Is this resurrection, if this resurrection is false, then you've hinged your life on a failed and miserable hope. It doesn't hold together without this resurrection. So if you're struggling with the idea of the resurrection, or if you've, or if you've removed this from your gospel message, because it doesn't seem that important, just think about the implications. And with the hope of Scripture, with the help of Scripture, I hope that we can embrace the depth of the hope that Jesus offers us. So the gospel hope that involves a resurrection of your body, a gospel hope that keeps a firm eye on who the enemy is, a firm eye on death. And so your salvation, it rescues you from sin and death. And that's, and that's where we're headed next here. So let's keep reading. Verses 20 through 23. But if in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So look again here. We see the pattern of Scripture where death, which is our greatest foe, introduced at the very beginning, through a human being. But that same pattern is reversed and redeemed by a different human, by Christ. This first Adam set up in God's plan has brought into, enter, entered into sin and death into this life, and now Christ comes again as a second Adam, giving us life. So the foe is spiritual in part. Don't, don't miss that. I'm not saying that. The foe is spiritual in part, but the foe is also physical death, and the cure is a resurrection, of which Jesus is just that first taste. So it calls him the first fruit. He's the first promise of more to come. The, the first fruits is that, is that down payment 
with the promise of future payments. If you buy a car, if you buy a house, you make a down payment with the promise of future payments where Jesus is that first payment with more to come, and that's you. And Jesus is that template. He's the archetype for your future. And this is the pattern which he set up since the beginning, where God set up in the garden this plan about how redemption would happen, about how sin and death would enter in, but then ultimately restoration was coming. The resurrection is central to God's plan. And so what do we mean by resurrection? So, well, first we said it's a physical bodily resurrection, but we also mean your resurrection is like Jesus. And that's a story we're familiar with, right? Easter. We know that story. We can conjure up that idea in our mind. We understand the concept of rising from the dead like Jesus. So this has been difficult for you to kind of wrap your mind around, like, what does it mean for me to to rise from the dead? Let's think about Easter. Because it says he is the first fruit. He's the promise. He's the pattern, the template that you will follow in. And so Paul continues with the narrative here. Christ rises, and then we follow in his pattern. And then here comes my favorite part. So let's begin in verse, let's keep reading in verse 24. And then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. And when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepting, accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Okay, so you might have got a little bit tangled up in here as I was reading that, because I also got tangled up with my tongue. There's a lot of subjections, but let me, let me let try to unravel this here. If you think I've been overplaying this metaphor of death, that death as our enemy or as this cosmic war happening, well, I got it from here. Right here, this cosmic conflict will be complete and God will reign supreme over all of his enemies, over authorities and rulers and power, and the final enemy to be defeated is death. And again, the question arises, how do you defeat death? An enemy that has reigned with an iron fist throughout all of known history. An enemy that steals the young, the crippled, the poor. Likewise, inflicting mercilessly on the rich, the powerful, and strong. It takes without discretion. It fights without rules. If any enemy we face cheats, if there's any enemy that we face that lies, then surely death is that one. Many of you know firsthand the pain, what this feels like. You know how evil death is. You've watched death steal people that you hold most precious. And how death then appears to mock you in your mourning. If you feel like I'm overworking this analogy of war against death, and forgive me. But I hate death. Okay, I, I hate how it steals and cheats and lies. Um, on November 18th, 2014, which is, oh Lord, almost um, five years ago next week, uh, my wife and I waited um, first for the birth of our daughter, Ella, but at the same time, in, in some sort of twisted, evil irony, we also waited 
for death to steal her. Okay, we found out earlier in our pregnancy that our daughter Ella had a, had a condition incompatible with life. That's what the doctors told us. Okay, and it was possible that she wouldn't live through, through birth, but she, but she did. But if she did live through birth, then it, it was likely she would only, her life would be measured in hours, more than days or weeks or years. And so she lived through birth and lived just under an hour before death cheated our joy and stole the life that God had given. So when I talk about death, I'm not trying to be overdramatic. I'm trying to be properly dramatic. Because our, our culture is good at ignoring or softening or hiding death because we don't know how to deal with it. We don't know how to handle it. And so I hope for a second that this gives you permission to grieve when you experience death around you. Permission to cry out in anguish or permission to hate death. To weep until you can weep no more because you know that this is not how things are supposed to be. This is not the way things ought to be. Death will never be your friend. So maybe you're young and death hasn't stolen from you yet. Your friends, your parents, your grandparents are healthy. A little bit this morning, I want you to wrestle with death because it will come to cheat you, to steal from you, and to mock you. But while it is a cruel and powerful enemy, I'm here because there's hope in the gospel. Not just a hope for a spiritual life, and that's coming, but a hope for a believer that they will rise again in the Lord. That a resurrection is coming, that God is conquering all enemies. And how do you defeat death? By taking away death's greatest power, finality. The most devastating part of death is that nobody's coming back. That death is final. Nobody comes back from death till someone does. Till someone does. And Jesus defeats death. Because all things must come under the rule and reign of our God. And that's what our passage is about. That God may be all in all and all things will be defeated. That death will be subjected under his feet. That there will be a resurrection. And so if you need a resurrection, Paul is making the case that death is our enemy. That we somehow need salvation from the death that is waiting for us. If you need a resurrection, then what difference does it make in our lives? So Paul will never leave a theology section without giving you practical advice. And so that's what 29 through 34 is here. Continue reading in verse 29. Otherwise... What do people mean by baptizing on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought against beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, then let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. So wake up from your drunken stupor as, it is, as is right and do not go on sinning for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Okay, first we have to deal with that head scratcher in verse 29. 
Okay, so people being baptized on behalf of the dead. So if you do just a little bit of reading here, it becomes clear pretty quick that pastors and commentators and scholars, there's not a lot of clarity about what is happening here. So let's say a couple things about it. So first, we don't have any evidence of this stuff or this, this activity happening outside of the early church. I mean, I'm sorry. We don't have any evidence outside of this statement that the early church practices. Okay, this wasn't a common thing in the early church, and Paul doesn't give it any sort of endorsement or any sort of condemnation. We also don't really know what was happening. There's not a lot of clarity or instruction about what was going on here. So there's, this is not something that we should be practicing today. We don't know what it was. Paul's not endorsing it, and there's not really evidence of other believers, other churches practicing this early. And so, and so exactly what it was... Uh, there's some different ideas we could talk through if you want to talk afterwards. But the, the point that Paul's digging into is he's saying that, hey, what you're doing here is confessing the resurrection. He's, saying, he's using this as an argument against their lack of belief. He's saying that there is a pra- they're practicing this baptism on behalf of the dead because it was testifying to the resurrection of believers. And he's beginning to make the point here that hope in the resurrection changes your life. And he next makes the point about sacrificing. Sacrifices that come with living with hope in view. If you've got hope in the gospel, it changes some things. So why, he says, why are we in danger every hour? I fought with beasts at Ephesus. And it's no, it's no secret, Paul's life throughout the book of Acts, how he encounters and puts himself in harm's way constantly for the sake of the gospel. He probably didn't literally fight with beasts, but he faced fierce opposition from opponents who persecuted him because of the gospel. He was stoned and shipwrecked. Paul suffered greatly for the gospel. Why? Why sacrifice for the gospel? Why would you do this? You don't do this for a suffer a false gospel. You don't do this for a human gospel or for a gospel that lacked true victory. For a gospel that didn't actually defeat the enemy you're facing in death. Because hope in the resurrection will change your life, and it does change how you live your life and the sacrifices you're willing to make. A false hope, false hope, well, that's a terrible thing. We, most of all, are to be pitied if for some reason we are here this morning gathering around a false hope. I feel sorry for us if that was why we were here. We've given up creaturely comfort for an empty promise. And so maybe some of your non-Christian friends or family have looked at you with some sort of pity or confusion. They don't get you. You give your money away to this thing called the church. You spend your time here on Sunday mornings instead of sleeping in. And throughout the week, you're visiting with maybe church community. You're giving up so much of your valuable assets, your time, your money, your energy for this faith in a hope of Jesus or resurrection. Even more shocking might be the lifestyle changes you make, your sexual ethic, your intolerance for injustice, your willingness to reconcile and forgive those who sin against you. Those are costly, costly things. And the reason they can pity you is because they don't understand the hope that you have. Forget church, forget religion. If this isn't true, I'm right here with you. If this isn't true, then eat, drink, for tomorrow we die, and that's the end. But I am convinced, I am convinced to the deepest part of me that the resurrection is true, that Jesus did rise again, and if he rose again, then I know that I have victory over death. 
the believers, brothers and sisters, that we have victory over death as well. Jesus is the first fruits, the template, and we get to follow in that path. So hope in the resurrection does change your life. It changes your hope. It changes your actions. So here this morning, if you acknowledge your mortal enemy, then you want a different hope in this life. You want a resurrection. And by the grace and the power of God, that's exactly what we get. It's exactly what Jesus offers you. And so as we wrap up, if, if this gospel message is new to you, or maybe it's really old for you, but you haven't yet believed, then start there first. Before anything else, let me plead with you to believe in the gospel of Jesus, to place your trust in his work to save you from sin and death. But if you already know Jesus, then I want you to embrace this hope. I want you to embrace your full hope. Build this hope somehow somehow into your daily life so that you can remember. Create some sort of patterns in your life, maybe a, some sort of gospel pattern in your life that points you back to the hope you have. Maybe try this. So for the next week, every morning when you wake up, when your alarm goes off and you rise out of bed, pause for a moment and thank the Lord for the hope that you will rise again. When you wake up, when you rise out of bed, pause and thank the Lord that he is going to raise you again in the afterlife. Create a small pattern in your life like this. Something to instill daily hope into you and point your heart and your mind to Christ. Would you guys pray with me as we close? You, Lord, are the giver of life and the author of salvation. Where have we to go but to you? May your kingdom come. May your rule and reign be established over your enemies. And may you hasten your return and your redemption of your people. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Lord, you are good, and this morning we acknowledge that. Amen.